1: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Andy Neal about his book, Had Me a Real Good Time, Faces Before, During, and After, published in 2011 by Omnibus Press, a fantastic rock band. Faces emerged from the wreckage of two other influential bands, Small Faces and the Jeff Beck Group. They went on to be one of the more successful commercially and critically acclaimed bands of the early 70s and, especially for Two Faces, Ron Wood and Rod Stewart, superstars in their own right. Wood with the Rolling Stones and Stewart as a solo artist. As the book's title suggests, Neil provides a richly detailed history of the five members' pre-Faces careers, their tenure with the Faces, and what has become of them since the dissolution of the band. Of note is Neil's exhaustive history of just about anyone who had any connection to the band. Roadies, producers, label executives, wives, other musicians, and more. At this point, Had Me A Real Good Time must be seen as a definitive history of Faces, an important band that was an important part of an important rock scene. Andy Neil is also the co co-author of Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, The Complete Chronicle of the Who, as well as compiling Across the Universe, The Beatles on tour and on stage. He writes liner notes as well as consults on biographies and documentaries. Neil's writing has appeared in Mojo, Record Collector and Ugly Things. He lives in London, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello Andy, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hi Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great. Um why don't we we start off by you giving us a bit of your biography? Tell us about yourself, please
0: well I've sort of been writing about uh popular music, particularly the nineteen sixties and seventies, which I guess is my era um, i've been doing it now um professionally for about the last ten years or so
1: uh-huh
0: um, and uh, but it's always been an interest of mine and i've I've just always been sort of um, involved in you know, either contributing to other projects or my own projects, and it's just been an ongoing thing, really. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you say it's your era. Is it, this, this is this is your time as a teenager and a young adult, the late sixties, early seventies.
0: Probably the seventies more. I was a little bit too young, um, just to. I just missed out on the sixties, although I caught. Some of the end of the 60s, I, you know, have memories of that. But um, the 70s um, was probably the time that I was getting into new music, but also um, at the same time, checking out um, what was happening, you know, from that period that had just gone, you know, because there was so much good stuff that, was ha- that had happened that I was sort of was a little bit. Uh, I, I'm the youngest of four brothers and sisters. So I sort of lived it vicariously through them, if you like, you know. Uh
1: huh. And and you grow? Did you grow up in London? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Um. And so how did you come? You've written a book about the Who. Uh, how did you come to write about the Faces specifically?
0: Well, it sort of was a byproduct of um, you know a lot of the work that I'd done with the Who that both bands were connected um, in in many ways. You know, they came out at roughly the same time. And um, in 1964, 65 in London. And, you know, there there, there was a lot of parallels there where they were sort of both came from the mobs afford the records I just couldn't afford the concert tickets all the concert tickets sold out before I, I could get a chance to get to see them, You know,
1: I remember my uh, my sister who's just a, a few years older than me I was looking at, in the back of the book you have their, their complete tours from 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 the band and right yeah. I remember I grew up in in San Diego in California and I remember that when I was young, being jealous as she went, she saw the faces with with Loggins and Messina in San Diego, and I, I remembered that when I looked at your book.
0: Right, right. That would be 1975.
1: 1975, I yeah. I
0: think that was one of the last tours they did. Yeah, th- yeah. According yeah.
1: to your book, it was. Uh, they had two tours yeah. that year. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So yeah, that was ironically, you know. they... they from, you know, when they first went to America, but right up to that last tour, especially those last two tours, you know, they were so popular in America. If you look at those tour schedules, they're just playing all over America. You know,
1: right? And I, I, where she where she saw them, it was, I think it's called Balboa Stadium, and I, it probably holds right. I don't know eight thousand.
0: Yeah, people that's, or so. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: well let's let's get into your book proper then um uh, the be, the beginning is kind of biographies of of the band members and 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 where they grew up um uh why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, uh the era when when they were all born in in the the mid forties at the end of World War two or just after the end of world war two and you spend some time talking about you know the the uh, the influence that World War Two had definitely on their parents' generation and on, on them. Can you talk about their, their early histories, their biographies, please?
0: Well, I definitely think the war and that sort of post-war or the baby boomer generation that they were part of um, definitely sort of had an impact, oops, sorry, had a had a sort of um of how they would develop. Um, that, that sort of very much uh, gang mentality, if you like, all for one, one for all, because Britain you know, Britain, in the, you know, straight after the war, it was a country of deprivations. Um, you know, there was what they called rationing over here with, you know, luxuries like sugar and, and even things like bananas and all that. You know, it was all rationed because those luxuries, you know, the war had just sort of wiped out. Um, things that I guess the Americans would take for granted, you know, because it was the sort of first 10 years after the war from like 45 to the mid 50s. You know, it, Britain was a nation that was rebuilding itself, and rationing was a part of that. So all the guys in the faces, um, that in fact, um, there's a few quotes in there um, where Ronnie Lane's <laughs> brother remembers his elder brother remembers sort of playing on the ruins as a kid, you know, and or going down to the local market to look for um, jumbles, rags for his father, and of course, all these early experiences um, would turn up in later on from the band looking back, you know, particularly Ronnie Lane, the, the one I was referring to then was um, Debrie, of course which was on, and not as good as a wing, but even Rod would look back to his childhood um, and things like Every Picture Tells a Story, just, you know that early sort of working class life that they that they all had, so they were all from a working class background um, you know, they, they didn't own their own homes you know, they, they weren't from sort of like relatively wealthy families you know they were um from that generation that that came up after the war and, and also i think that was the thing that was crucial later on is that they'd all shared that same experience uh, i think they had been from different backgrounds if, if, if so sort of one was wealthier than the other or would come from a different more classier background then it may have affected and that wouldn't have worked but because they'd shared that whole sort of common um breeding if you like then uh, um, something that uh, was proved to be advantageous later. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how about how about the the popular music scene that they grow up in? So they they probably start being aware of popular music in the mid to late fifties and into the early sixties. What what kind of uh, influences are are the members having, and what kind of what kind of uh, pop music scene is happening in England at that time?
0: Well, it was a very watered down pop scene. I mean, you guys were spoiled because you had rock and roll. I mean, you know. Rock and roll, what started in 54, 55, and Britain was very, you know, the records were coming out over here, you know, like you'd hear Bill Haley and Elvis Presley and 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 things like that. But you know, it this it took a long time, and some would argue it didn't. It took until the Beatles for Britain to sort of actually produce its own sort of convincing. Or genuine version of rock and roll, but um, the guys in the faces were, were listening to that. But in fact, they had quite diverse influences. I mean, Rod Stewart is a, is a case in point. I mean, his parents were big fans of Al Jolson, and he would remember his earliest musical sort of memory is, you know, being around the house and hearing old Al Jolson 78 that his that his mother would play. Um, and his brother was sort of the youngest of, I think, five children, and, you know, he they, they came from a musical family, so there was always music playing around, but he, he just remembers that sort of almost like the old show tunes, if you like, mm-hmm. he, he came from that background. Um, similarly, Ronnie Wood, when he was growing up in West London, his two elder brothers were into jazz, people like Big Fedebeck and all that sort of old traditional New Orleans jazz. Um, and rock and roll came a bit later for, for him um, you know with his brother Skiffle group now Skiffle just briefly was a sort of a, a very British um, phenomenon in the fact that all these sort of exotic instruments like Fender guitars and, and drum kits and all that you know were way out of the reach of the average teenager who you know aspired to play music so these guys would get old washboards and, and you know as a teacher's chest bass, as a stand-up bass, and then make their own music. And, and Ronnie Wood's first gig was actually playing in, a, in his local cinema in between the, the movie shows, um, playing this, this form of skiffle. So that was how you know that was his introduction to it. And of course. Johnny Lane and, and Ian McClagan that they, they'd they all listen to people like Buddy Holly and uh, you know, there, there's a story in there, um Ian McClagan remembers hearing, you know, rock around the clock at his cousin's birthday party or his sister's birthday party. I have to go back to the book and refer to that. But you know, so they're all hearing music either through their sort of um, elder brothers or sisters or they just heard it by chance on the radio or their parents or you know, so they're all sort of diverse um, if you like that they brought to the um their, their their influences. Um they're not really what you'd expect from you know, particularly with Rod, with with those with an influence like Al Jolson, you know, you'd expect somebody with perhaps like uh, like Elvis or um Gene Vincent or something like that. But no, it it stretches back even further.
1: Mm-hmm. And, then, and you mentioned that in in the book that there's a moment where in the 60s, and I, this is, I think, about the time when, when small faces are forming and the Yardbirds and later on the Jeff Beck group and, and the birds, yeah. the, the British birds, where you say that the London changes from more of an r and B based scene to a psychedelic blues and rock scene.
0: Um, That's right. I mean, it all... To coalesce in London around about 1965, 66. I mean, it's, it's 63, 64 uh, was when rhythm and blues, um, sh- you know, the sort of Chicago rhythm and blues was being popularized by people like um, Alexis Corner, who, of course, was a big influence on the Rolling Stones. Um, and previously, these clubs in London, like the Marquee Club, had been catering to jazz, you know, to traditional jazz, what have you, and then suddenly this rhythm and blues thing came in, and then from then on, it just became obvious that there were a lot of groups that were sort of, it had started off on a rhythm and blues kick and were probably quite sincere in what they were playing, but... It, it, there was so There was such a diverse amount of influences that were that were happening in London at the time that the music mutated and and people were sort of hearing American soul music for the first time, you know the stacks. Sound and um, and of course Pamela Motown, which wasn't I mean uh, Pamela was a big was, was quite popular in America, but it was it was almost like a cult music in in Britain. It it didn't really hit the hit parade until a bit later. So all these guys were playing it, and Rod was a, a big Motown fan. You know he, he loved the Temptations, and of course the Faces went on to cover a few Temptations tunes. And then yes, and the, as you say, '66 into '67 was when the drug the culture was starting to permeate everything and, and, and the music was changing. But, the, you know, apart from the small faces of, say, Itchy Park and a few of the tracks on Ogden's Nut Flake, and maybe a few other things, Here Comes the Nice is maybe another example, they weren't really a, a sort of a, what you would sort of typify as a psychedelic group. And, and neither was the Jeff Beck group. In fact, the Jeff Beck group were very much like a contemporary blues group. Canned Heat or Mm -hmm. some other similar band in America, they weren't really into that
1: there's a lot of groups that you write about that are free faces but let's concentrate on small faces and Jeff, that group. Tell us, you know, briefly give us a summary of, of, of small faces, please. Well,
0: so the small faces were one of Britain's most popular groups in the mid-60s, and uh, they were quite underrated at the time because they were sort of unfairly saddled, in my view, with a sort of pop pop group tag because they were all sort of had a, a similar image. They're all small. They're all quite <laughs> I mean Steve Marriott was sort of like the pin-up and uh, and it kind of overshadowed the music I mean the, 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 they were very successful in Britain I mean I think they had something like um, 10 top 10 hits and you know they, because they were always sort of up in the charts and, and on the radio and things like that you know they weren't considered a serious. That they had a different image from say a band like, like The Who or, or The Yardbirds or something something like that that were considered maybe a little bit more more hipper or a bit more credible if you like but you know they they were actually a, a very fresh original band and they and they worked as a unit so well they were so cohesive um they set off with another and, and as soon as Ian McClagan joined it was almost like the, the missing piece of a jigsaw and um you know they just just image wise music wise they just in my view recorded some of the best singles some of the best music from that time That Has worn very well, and um, similarly with the Jeff Beck Group. You know, Jeff Beck Group were put together um, after Jeff had left the Yardbirds, or was pushed from the Yardbirds, whichever version you
2: believe.
0: Right. But uh, yeah, and again, they were more not so much on record. if you like.
1: Uh, for your story and the story of the faces an important distinction I think that Jeff Beck group uh, they went to America and and small faces never did correct
0: that's correct yeah um, it, it's always the thing that like you know the, the small faces were considered the band that should have made it um, you know that so many British groups were going to America you know you, you sort of had that initial British invasion of The Beatles and the Dave Clarks and the Herman's Hermits and what have you. And then um, it was this thing that the next wave were going to be coming over, and that included people like The Move and Jimi Hendrix, and sorry, not The Move, I beg your pardon, The Who and Jimi Hendrix. Um, Even though Jimi Hendrix was American, you know, he had to go to England to become known, and then, you know, he was. Due to come back, and all these other bands that were sort of on the cusp of coming into America, um, sort of in the back at the back door, if you like, people like Traffic and uh, Procol Hiram and all these sort of bands. But because the Small Faces weren't that well known in America, none of their records had charted. It was very hard to get a visa. To tour America, the musicians' union were very strict, and um, to try and get a visa to tour, or you know, was was difficult. I mean, the Yardbirds had incredible problems when Jeff Beck first came over. Um, you know, the, the trip was delayed while the, all these applications were looked at, and you really had to have a hit single, or you had to have some sort of merit or distinction um, to do that. And the Small Faces didn't have that because until Ichiku Park, came out in 67, 1967. They, they were sort of an unknown quantity. They were only really a, a cult group. And as I said in the book, um, by the time they finally were in a position to come over and do the gig, um, Matt, Ian McClagan, the, the organist, the band got busted. And of course, if you had a drug conviction um, in, in those days, you couldn't get a visa to enter America for at least a year. And of course, uh, that would have taken them three to 68 or 69. And, of course, that was when Steve Marriott decided that he wanted to leave the band. So the, the, the original Small Faces never did get to America, more to pity.
1: So then uh, tell us about then uh, the, the the dissolution of both Small Faces and Jeff Beck Group and then the creation of Faces out of that, please. Well,
0: the Small Faces... Uh, had sort of been together for about three years or so, and they'd had this pop image, which was quite grating on them um, because they felt that they were sort of worth more than that. And it was particularly calling to Steve Marriott because being the front man, he was sort of like the focal image of the, of the group. But it was also at a time when, you know, the supergroups were coming through you know and and music was getting quite serious with you know the psychedelic and the progressive music that was that was around in the late sixties early seventies mm-hmm. the drug culture et cetera et cetera and Steve felt that he wanted to be a part of that or, or or accept it as something that was more than just sort of like a pop group if you like so so sort of quite unexpectedly, he decided to quit the group. You know, he announced it on New Year's Eve of 1968, and he left the band in the early part of '69. And so the other guys in the small faces, uh, Ronnie Lane, and McLagan, and Kenny Jones, were sort of left in the lurch, if you like, and didn't know where to turn. And initially they were going to break up, but they sort of decided to speak together. And around about the same time, the Jeff Beck group, who'd been sort of touring to great success in America, and they'd released the Truth album, which was a quite a big radio hit in America and, um, you know, it was getting airplay and, and, you know, they were selling out concert halls, but the Jeff Beck Group was such an unstable band at the best of times that in between American tours, Jeff Beck decided to fire the rhythm section, which was Ronnie Wood on bass and Nicky Waller, the drummer. Now, Ronnie had always been a fan of the Small Faces, so when he'd heard that Steve Merritt had left them, he sort of rang up Ronnie Lane out of the blue and said, you know, let's get together and, and maybe work some ideas out and get a band together. So they had nothing else to lose, so they just sort of got together. And, um, of course, Rod was still in the Jeff Beck group at this point, but he was still, and he still is to this day, a very close friend of Ronnie Woods. So he was curious to know what his old pal was up to. And so he started to drop in on these sort of Informal rehearsals that they were having uh, down in the Rolling Stones' old uh, rehearsal studio in South London, and um, initially he wasn't singing; he was just sort of hanging out. And because you know of their backgrounds and the fact they shared a, a sense of humour that was very similar, they um, they were just sort of hanging out, really. And Rod wasn't really taking it that much seriously, or even considering, probably of. Wanting to sing with them, but they were gradually getting better and better. And because the situation with Beck was always so unpredictable, and when Beck finally cancelled an American tour um, midway through, which was to have included Woodstock, um, they came back, and that's when Rod decided, you know, I'm going to just throw in my lot with uh, Ronnie Wood and and these guys who used to be in the Small Faces, and um, take it from there. And and that's really how they got together. Mhm.
1: Did, did they they invited him to be the singer, didn't they? Or, or
0: that's right. Well, it was it was obvious that he was good when he sang with them that it worked, that it gelled. But mm-hmm. there was a problem in that Ian McCraggan and Ronnie Lane, in particular, were wary of getting in another lead singer type, if you like, of, of the type that they'd experienced with. Marriott, because you know, the ego problems, or the fact that you know, there all the attention be directed to the lead singer, so they that's a, little, a bit sort of hesitant to jump right in and, and invite right in. But as Kenny Jones um, has said on many occasions. Even as the drummer sitting at the back of these rehearsals, he could tell the, the considerable difference that Rod made to the band once he started uh, getting up there and, and playing. And oh, sorry, and, and singing with them. So it was Kenny who first took, him, took Rod for a drink before one of the rehearsals and said, "You know, how'd you fancy joining up with us?" And Rod said, "Well, do you think that you know do you think it'd work?" And he said, "Yeah, I'll have a word to the other guys." And uh, and for those the reasons I've just mentioned, uh, Lane and McLagan were initially against it. Um, of course, Ronnie Wood was delighted because, you know, Rod was his friend and, you know, was, he, he he could see how it would work. But they, those two were the ones that needed uh, convincing. And eventually they were convinced and, and, and it worked. But of course it caused problems later mm-hmm. on.
1: Were, were they seen at the time as a, as a supergroup, that like Cream or something, or
0: no, not at all. Um, not in this country. In fact, um, it might surprise some people to discover that they were actually considered a bit of a joke um, in this country. Maybe not so much a joke, but you know they weren't. They weren't rated very highly, mainly because they were seen as the sort of leftovers or the remnants of two successful bands. It was almost seen as some sort of like desperate move for these guys to get together because you know Steve Marriott had gone off to Humble Pie, and for many people, Steve Marriott you know was the you know the voice and the songwriter and the small faces, even though the other guys in the band had a big part to play. And um, you know it, it, it was almost like the, you know, and also it has to be that Rod, Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood weren't that well-known in Britain at the time. I mean, Rod was the singer with Jeff Beck, but Jeff Beck was far more well-known in Britain than, than Rod was, and Ronnie Wood was just sort of the bass player in the Jeff Beck group. So they were almost like an unknown quantity. When I say an unknown quantity, I mean... You know, the small faces, of course, were were very popular in Britain, but as a group, they certainly weren't considered a supergroup. If anybody was considered a supergroup, it would have been Humble Pie, um, who Steve had formed with Peter Frampton. However, in America, they were much more receptive because Rod Stewart was well-known through the Jeff Beck group, as was Ronnie Wood, and these guys... Uh, who used to be in the small faces, didn't have an image to live up to because they weren't well known in America. That they hadn't, Apart from Michiku Park, which was only really a minor hit in America, they weren't that well known. So there wasn't any sort of uphill climb um, that it felt like in, in England.
1: the beginning faces uh, concentrated on, on the United States rather than England isn't that right
0: that's very true yes
1: mm-hmm. and um, uh, again talk a little bit more about about uh, why you think that their style of music which again it's more of a blues based rather than psychedelic based is more popular in America than in England at the time well
0: I guess it had a lot to do with the, the way that uh, the music was um Received, if you like, in America, you know, like especially in a, in a venue like the the Grandy Ballroom, you know, a band like the MC5, or the, you know, particularly the MC5, you know, they would support a lot of these sort of like bands that were more popular, but they were into like, you know, having a, you know, creating a, you know, like an energetic show and getting people up and and you know getting the audience to be more responsive than a sort of a band that would come on and play almost for their own enjoyment and bore the audience to tears. <laughs> and the, with the faces came from a similar sort of um, uh, dynamic or, you know, they, they were more interested in just getting, getting the audience off rather than getting themselves off. You know, the audience part, the participation was, was an integral thing right from the very start. Whereas in England, you know, there there was a lot of these sort of bands that that came through, uh, you know, just just naming some random names of people, like I don't know, Jethro Tull or King Crimson, who were a lot more sort of serious and a lot more sort of um, better musicians.
1: And then you know he starts becoming a star on his own. Yeah. Uh, um, Talk for a while about you know about the tensions that created in the band and you know how does one maintain the the solo? I mean Rod Stewart's becoming a genuine superstar fairly quickly, isn't he?
0: Well, yeah. I mean it's 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 interesting because um, Rod had already signed a solo recording deal even before he joined the Faces because. Rod was very much, he was always very shrewd. And he was always keeping an eye on, you know, his chances or, or you know, he was always hedging his bets. Uh, on the album charts and the singles charts in both America and Great Britain, which I don't think anyone has ever equaled. And of course, you know, that, that created a great strain because nobody, it took the faces camp by surprise because, you know, they knew that, you know, Rod was, uh, uh, you know, successful in his own right. People came to see him, not necessarily came to see the faces, even though the faces were a great band. A lot of people came to hear Rod, you know, and, and until that point, it, it sort of been able to operate um, on an even keel. But of course, as soon as Rod had that massive success worldwide with um, the album and the single, it, you know, that it couldn't operate on the way it had anymore because obviously Rod was going to get more and more attention, and it started to become increasingly Rod Stewart and the Faces, which mm-hmm. caused great problems. You know, with promoters having to Take signs down because it caused ill feeling with the other members and a lot of jealousies and a lot of despite that it all caused. Um, but they managed to keep a lid on it until eventually it got to the point where it really ground Ronnie Lane down in particular. And he just felt that he was writing all these songs that just couldn't be um, recorded by the faces because they weren't really in that style. And he just felt that, you know, increasingly the spotlight was on Rob rather than the
1: band. Hmm. Um. So, so talk about then, please. Uh, Ronnie Lane's um end in the band. How did it come about?
0: Well, you know, Ronnie was always um, a distinctive songwriter going back to the Small Faces days. You know, he co-wrote with Steve, but they they very much wrote apart as well. And so, Ron, Ronnie had always been writing songs, and you know, he had songs on those early Faces albums. Um, but the way The Faces were, they were sort of a very ballsy, good-time, you know, exuberant, flash, rock-and-roll band. But the type of material that Ronnie was writing and preferred to play was a lot more sort of introspective, a bit more sort of folky or um, country vibes if you like, or, you know, it was a lot more laid-back than the sort of, the, you know, the, the, the all-out rockers of The Faces um, would deliver when they were live, and of course, Rod being the singer, you know, they they couldn't, it, it, it just didn't work when um, if they tried to do those sort of songs in the show, the songs that that Ronnie was more um, that was more sort of his style, and so Ronnie found that he was just writing all these songs that, you know, he he some the realization dawned that he would never be able to let alone record them, but not even, you know, sing them live. And it just became apparent that it was becoming more and more weighted towards Rod, in his view, than, you know, a democratic band, you know, where, where everything was sort of um, shared, even though it must be said that Rod always wanted just to be another guy in the band. But of course, you know, once he had that solo success, that was never going to work. And so I think that, that weighed down on him. And also he'd met this, he would met left his wife and he met this sort of rather charismatic um individual who he'd known for a few years, um, called Kate, who was quite influential in telling him that, you know, he could pursue this sort of nomadic gypsy lifestyle, you know, which I guess went back to his childhood, his East Ten childhood, you know, the game of the circus and, and uh and things like that. So I think it was all these things being brought to bear and he just decided that he wanted out, and uh, when he first said it, you know, the others couldn't believe it because, you know, they could understand his frustration with Rod, but you know, Ronnie was very much the, um, the you know, it was his band in a way, you know, because when the small faces sort of disintegrated, he was the one that sort of got the others together, and and you know, he was the one that was sort of organising the rehearsals, and he was in a, in a way. Um, you know, with with um, the other guys in the small faces, particularly Mac and Kenny, you know, he'd been there all, all that time. So for him to suddenly leave, as he did in 1973, it was a shock. Um, and the fact that, you know, we wouldn't have those great Ronnie Lane songs on the albums, like Debris and uh, Ooh La La and things like that, you know, that, it, it, it was, that wasn't going to work in, in the context of the faces anymore in his in and running for so that's when he decided to bow out and uh pursue his own sort of vision, if you like, artistic vision. hmm
1: and and uh what about his re- replacement? Tetsu Yamauchi.
0: Well <laughs> Tetsu, Tetsu replaced with all of the faces, particularly Rod, they are very big fans of three. Uh you know, Paul Rogers band and mm-hmm. uh What had happened was Tetsu was playing in England. Um, He'd been in a band that had come over from Japan, and he'd ended up playing in Free, because Free were actually a very big band in Japan. Um, And uh, so he'd filled in. He was filling in on bass. I think he'd actually joined them um, at the time when Ronnie Lane decided to leave. And originally they were trying to get Tetsu's um, predecessor, a guy called Andy Fraser, who played bass and free, but Andy Fraser turned them down. So Simon Kirk, the drummer was free, said, well, you know, why don't you try out Pitsu? You know, he's a lot more easygoing and, um, you know, he's a good bass player, etc. And it was almost like um, it was a decision they made on, you know, in haste in a way, um, because although Tetsu was a good musician, he wasn't the same sort of bass player as Ronnie. And more crucially, he didn't have that sort of shared background that they all had. Um, And also, he wasn't going to rock the boat like Ronnie would. You know, if Ronnie didn't like something um, in the band, you know, whether it was the choice of a song or, you know, whatever, you know, he would would speak his mind, whereas Tetsu was just sort of, Japanese guy who spoke very little English, who sort of just you know stood in the background, and the other thing, of course, is that and, and the thing that I talk about in the book is that he drank mm-hmm. twice as much as the band did, which, was, mm-hmm. which,
2: which, which would be a which, lot,
0: which was, which was going, going some, you know. So uh, you know, it, it sort of it wasn't really going to work.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, since you brought it up, talk, you know, talk about their you know, the part of their image, drinking was a big part of their image, right? Um, That's they right. had a, a bar on stage with a with yeah. a bartender and did this did this I mean they were serious, they weren't pretending, right?
0: Oh no, no, they were they were dedicated juices. Um, I mean right, right from the first American tour, you know, they used to buy up cheap cases of uh the rose or whatever it was and, and hand it out to the crowd to get the crowd gets as well, you know, um it was all part of this sort of, we're all having a party together. You know, there's almost like there's no boundary between the stage, the the band, and the audience, you know. Um, This goes back, I think, to also, you know, how they weren't really a part of that whole um, drug culture. I mean, that all dabbled in, in the drug scene, and of course cocaine went on to be quite a destructive part of what broke the band apart, but they were much more of a band that you would see in the holiday room after the show, you know, keeping the bar open, you know, and ordering round after round of drinks, you know, mm-hmm. that was the whole thing. I mean, when they rehearsed um, in the early days, they would leave the rehearsal room and, and go down to the pub and, you know, have, have a few drinks, come back, rehearse some more, go back to the pub, you know, that, that was, they, they, they started as they meant to continue. Mm hmm.
1: Did it ever affect their playing? Did they ever have oh, shows where?
0: Absolutely, some nights it helped, but often it didn't. And you know, the, the faces is probably a good point to to, to make now is that um, on a good night the faces were untouchable, but on a bad night they were bad, um, and that that was part of it. It was, but it could be anything, and it wasn't just the booze. It could be just that there's, you know, the sound system wasn't right, or or you know, there was a there's a, a bit of a, um, you know, there's a bit of a thing going between a couple of members that you know there might have been a little bit of um, unpleasantness or whatever. But generally, it was the fact more of the fact that sometimes they were just too incapacitated to um, deliver. Right. But it didn't happen that often. No. I mean, you know, it, 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 it was more a case of like, you know, if you look at those tour schedules. Sometimes they're playing, you know, three three shows, four shows on the trot and, and sometimes that's really tighten them up. But other times, you know, they'd be very tired and it would it, that would be reflective in their playing. So, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons, really. But I guess the, the one that um, sticks the most is the fact that they just used to like, uh, you know, imbibing, shall we say, before, mm. during, and after a show.
1: It almost seems, and, and you do make the connection and the connection can be seen, that it, it's a bit uh, pre-punk rock with the, the connection between the crowd and, and the audience and the band and then the obvious connection is, is Glenn Matlock of Sex Pistols who now plays with Faces, right?
0: That's right. Well, I mean, Glenn was a, he, he a classic example of, of a young British Faces fan. I mean, he he liked them because, you know, they came from a similar background to him. They were singing about sort of subjects that um, he could relate to like, you know, um, trying to go to a party and cop off with some girl and or while stealing their drinks, you know, and all, all sorts of things. I was sort of like, you know, a young gang of lads who were out to have fun. And, you know, he, he responded to that. And the fact too, that, you know, when they did play live, it was, it, they weren't trying to exclude the audience or just saying, you know, Hey, we have come to play to you. Now you shut up and listen. The audience had to be a part of it, you know, and, uh, yeah, that, that stuck with them. And he, and he loved their look as well, because a lot of the that's the other thing, the faces had such a great image as well. You know, they, they dressed well, they looked great, you know, and a lot of bands from those early 70s were got, you know, long-haired and denims and beards, and, and they just looked, you know, no different from any other band that was, you know, there were so many bands that looked like that, whereas the faces were this really sort of, glam, they, they were very glamorous, they were glamorous, and they, were, they, they looked distinctive, but they were also quite um, accessible, if you like, or, um, you know, people could relate to them. They weren't sort of like David Bowie, you know, Ziggy Stardust, you know, looking like an alien from outer space, or they weren't, um, you know, Brian Perry or something, you know, dressed in a, in a tuxedo, you know, sort of like trying to be very elegant. And, and you know, th- th- these guys, they looked great, they looked. I mean, Rod right and Ronnie Wood looked like brothers, um, with the haircuts and the clothes and everything like that. But you know, they were just they they were accessible. You know, they you, you, they didn't jump into a, a limo and then hide themselves away up on their their hotel rooms like Led Zeppelin did. They would be down at the bar, hanging out with the fans. You know, getting drunk. You know, meeting women. You know, whatever. You know, it was rock and roll, and that's what it, that's what it should be.
1: How did this change as as they start playing to more people? I mean, get, were they able to maintain this connection with the audience when they are playing to ten, twelve, fifteen thousand people?
0: It got more and more difficult, obviously, but they just still. I mean, Rod was and, is, is, had, and has been an entertainer, so he's always going to try and get. He's always going to try and project to that person in the 115th row. You know, it's it's always a part of him that he feels he has to deliver a good show. And so he always tried to break down those barriers that came from playing those big shows, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, right to the end, you know, those, those last shows, obviously, you know, they were superstars by the end of it, but Rod always sort of tried to re- retain that common touch that, that, that they always had. And,
1: and and they would they would advertise their hotel, right? At the, at the show? Right,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah that's it that, that, you know, there was no hold bar they 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 were just there to, to party down and and to just you know if if they they didn't consider themselves at loose that you know they they didn't want people to come back they were they were they, and they had dedicated fans i mean I, I, there was a, one guy that i interviewed from St louis who um we used to follow the band around you know, that sort of area, St. Louis, Chicago, um, Detroit, et cetera, you know, because they were the sort of band that attracted that sort of fan um, element, if you like, but not so much a fan, but they actually became friends with the band, you know, they, 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 they got to know them, and, you know, the, the football, the soccer ball would come out, and they'd have a game of soccer up and down the corridors of the hotels, and, uh, you know, things would get out of hand, but it, it was sort of good, clean fun in a way. Okay, it did get out of hand when, you know, the police the, the local sheriff's department got called, but it was never intended to be sinister. I mean, some of the stories you read of, of bands like Red September, it did get a little bit sinister. The places uh-huh. were just, you know, like a bunch of, I guess, like, flat boys out there. I guess it was a bit like Animal House, you know? the John <laughs> film. Right. You know?
1: So then uh, at some point, uh, Ron Wood starts being courted by the Rolling Stones. When when does this happen and how does that go?
0: Well, ironically, everyone associates Ronnie Wood with, with Keith, you know, the, the the big Keith, little Keith type of thing. But um, coming up, the, the one, um, the stone that, that Ronnie first got um, friendly with uh, was Mick Jagger, because Mick Jagger was a big fan of the faces. Um, and you know he would he would check him out if and when he had the opportunity, and he got to know um he got to know Ronnie quite well because Ronnie's such a convivial guy, he's easy to get along with, and uh you know they 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 became good friends and then in nineteen seventy three um Keith and Ronnie got friendly because Ronnie was starting to record his first solo album. And he was just like, you know, he was just like being on tour. He just invited everyone back to his house, except in this case, the people he invited back to his house were sort of like A-list musicians like, you know, Nick Jagger and George Harrison and Billy Preston and all sorts of people. Just They're just his friends. And he sort of came back one night um, and He was invited back by Ronnie's then wife, Chrissy. And um, as she says, I, I came back for a night and I ended up staying there for three weeks. You know, they would just, you know, plug into certain substances and stay up all night recording, and in, in, in that basement studio um, in Richmond, the house he had, which is now owned by Pete Townsend, the Wic, um, and uh, and that's that's how that the phone connection happened. But you know, they, they were they were, they were very close. But of course, it it's, it doesn't take uh, a genius to work out that Ronnie, you know. Was it, the Stones were his band, you know? Ever since he saw them in 1963 and you know, to get an offer, or, or a, a, you know, a sort of a possibility that he might be able to play with them, as as what happened when Mick Taylor left the band mm-hmm. uh, in 1974, they, they the Stones suddenly needed a guitarist, and Nick was sort of saying, you know, like, you know, who who can you think of? And and as Woody said, you know. I was screaming inside myself, it's me, it's me, you know, but he couldn't let the faces down, you know. But I, in a way, you know, like it was the writing was on the wall in 1975, you know, like it, it, it was coming apart in a way and Rod was getting bigger and bigger um, on the solo stakes and, you know, when when, when he sat in on the Stone summer tour that year, it was like, you know, hand in glove. you know, he fitted so well, so... You know, when he came back for that last, that final face tour at the end of the year in 1975, you know, a few of the guys I spoke to said, you know, as soon as he walked into the rehearsal hall, you know, he'd left for that tour a face. But, you know, he walked into the rehearsal hall of Rolling Stone and, uh, you know, it was obvious that uh, it wasn't going to last for much longer. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and then Rod, uh, popular, you know, critical wisdom has it. And, and you mentioned uh, Rod's change begins with the album Smiler. But, you know, everybody knows you know, something happened with Rod where he kind of stops being, a you know, a, a real rock and roller and becomes more of a pop star. Is this happening while he's with the faces?
0: Well, he seems to have incredible taste and judgment for those sort of first four albums. You know, he didn't really put a foot roll you know, he had a great selection of songs to cover. His own songs that he wrote were absolute classics, things like, you know, Maggie May and You Wear It Well, and, um, you know, uh, oh, my mind's gone blank for a second. True Blue, songs like that, you know, that he co-wrote with Ronnie or He co-wrote with a guy called Martin Quintington. Um, you know, it just seemed that the, the production, and, the, and he recorded the albums, in about two or three weeks, and it just everything just seemed to gel. But then I think I think cocaine played a big part of it, and I also think you know the the fact that he was being courted by the management and being groomed as a as a sort of a potential um, superstar on his own, and and just the fact that you know he, he'd met um, Hollywood royalty and people like Brad that I think it just changed them really. You know, I don't think it changed, I don't think. Uh, his, his voice was always the voice was always the thing that sold the records in a way. I mean, it's just it was the fact that you know he had been doing some incredible stuff like Gasoline Alley or um, you know uh, I'd rather go blind, or, which okay wasn't one of his songs, but yeah. You know, and then in three short years he was doing things like Tonight Tonight. Uh,
1: <laughs> do you, know, you think I'm sexy?
0: You know, do you think I'm sexy? You know, just just songs that just even he now feels. If, you know, if you catch him at a certain time, he feels inclined to disown, you know. It just—it was just one of those things. But it had, it, 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 to be fair, it didn't just happen to Rod, it happened to a lot of rock and roll guys from the 60s and 70s, where somebody once said that most of the most important musicians or artists do their important um, work by the time they're 30. Now, Rod turned 30 in 1975, Pete Townsend turned thirty in 1975. Mick Jagger turned thirty in 1973. And if you, you know, are bothered with these things, you start to notice that the quality deteriorates around about that time. You know,
1: mm-hmm. even though yeah, their their commercial sec- success often often you know Rod Stewart recently you know with it with these albums he's putting out is he might be selling more than ever. I don't know. That's
0: right. Well, they they have. I mean, the Great American Songbooks that, yeah. that took everybody by surprise, yeah. including me. You know, yeah. you know. I think he just did it because, you know, he had that um, life-threatening surgery uh, on, on his mm-hmm. vocal cords. The, the, you know, he had a, a cancerous growth removed mm-hmm. and um, he had to learn to sing again and those were the songs that uh, sort of suited his voice, you know, mm-hmm. and who was to know that they would be some of his biggest, if not his biggest, selling albums of, all, of his career, I think. Yeah. I could be wrong, but... Uh,
1: pretty close. Um, so, yeah. So tell us, how did The Faces end?
0: Well, The Faces ended, I think it was almost like a, a, a natural end in a way. I mean, although it was a bit of a messy breakup because, you know, Rod was getting bigger and bigger and, and he was recognised as, as, you know, Rod Stewart, the great superstar. But of course, the band now were being billed as Rod Stewart and The Faces, which was, you know, annoying to certain members of the band particularly uh, McClagan, and, and even Wood, who you know is quite easy going, even, you know, he thought, well, hang on, you know, we started this stand as the faces, even though they've always been built in America as Rod Stewart and the faces by promoters to help sell tickets. So, there was always a sort of uneasiness there, um, even though they were still doing great business, they were touring and uh, selling out places, but, um, there was that thing over Rob being billed over the rest of the band and getting more attention, and also just Ronnie wood you know had been courted by the stones and you know he was considering his options and looking towards you know his horizon as to what he was going to do because you know you could see that maybe the wheels were going to come off fairly imminently and um, so it just happened that uh, the band was due to go back into the studio after that final. 1975 tour and start recording a new album and um, you know, Rod didn't show up and because Rod by that point had become a tax exile and was living in, in California and Ronnie came back from that tour and went straight to I believe Montreux in Switzerland and started recording the Black and Blue album with the Stones so Kenny Jones, the McWagan and Tetsu were sort of there wondering what was happening. And then um, when it was becoming obvious that Ronnie had pretty much become the Rolling Stone in all but name, um, Rod announced, hoping would, according to him in the and he had no idea that uh, this was about to happen, Rod uh, gave an interview to one of the big tabloids over here in Britain, the Daily Mirror, saying that he'd left the faces because he was tired of his uh, guitarist being on permanent loan to the Rolling Stones, quote, unquote. Um, and uh, so that was it, really. I mean, they staggered on into 1976. They gave interviews to the music press saying that they were going to record with or without Rod, you know, and that, of course, they booked some sessions and, and Ron and Wood never turned up. And it was pretty obvious that that was it, the end of the game. So it they sort of went out with a with a winter, really, rather than one sort of like, you know, huge farewell concert or something like that. You know, that,
1: that was the end of it. And and then now jumping ahead, 35 years, they, they've played a few shows, a couple, what are they doing now? What are Faces up to now?
0: Well, this year, of course, is a big year for them because uh, the, the Faces and the Small Faces under one umbrella are being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th in Cleveland. So Mm -hmm. they're sort of finally getting overdue recognition. So whether they'll do any shows around that or whether they'll just play the the ceremony, I've no idea. Um, There's no word what the Stones are up to, if anything, this year. They're they're celebrating their 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Um, So Ronnie Wood would be available. Whether they're going to do any more shows, with um, with singer Nick Hutnell, I've yet to hear of any definite plans, but uh, you never know. We, we could be surprised. We could see a tour with Rob, possibly not, but it sure. would be good at least if they just see several shows, several selected shows as sort of one last, you know, laying the ghost, if you like, of, right. of the band.
1: Right. Well, th- uh, thanks, Annie. It's a great book. Um, w- what are you up to now? Are you working on a new book of any kind?
0: <laughs> I'm resting. <laughs> then, rest? uh, I, I've got a few ideas for various projects, a uh, few items in the fire. Um, just waiting to see where i will end up, um, but nothing definite is yet.
1: <laughs> okay, well, again... Uh, I've always been a big fan of Faces and and, and Early Rod Stewart, some of my favorite music ever. And and I think your book is, at least at this point, has to be uh, the definitive Faces biography. So uh, thank you for being on our show. Well, Thank you,
0: Matt. It's been a pleasure. It's been good talking to you. And uh, um, I hope people who are listening to this will go out and read it and just appreciate how much of a great band the Faces really are.
1: I hope so. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Andy Neal about his book, Had Me a Real Good Time, Faces Before, During, and After, published by Omnibus Press in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.